As Kevin mentioned, and as you, most of you already know, we're in the book of De- Deuteronomy, um, and the, the message this morning is a simple title, One God. Throughout Scripture, God at times shows himself superior to the gods of the pagans. He shows himself superior to powerful kings and pharaohs. You're familiar with many of those stories. Uh, certainly Exodus records how God showed himself powerful in many of the battles where the nations came against Israel. God shows he's powerful. And scripture also tells us stories about what happens when God is not properly regarded. One of those is in Acts, where it talks about Herod, and he got up to give a speech, and he had this glittering outfit on, and the people said, oh, it's a God, not a man. And rather than giving glory to God, he took the glory the people were giving as though he were a God and died of worms because of it. Elijah proved that God, actually God proved through Elijah that he was the only true God in his contest with the priests of Baal. Now, I want to read one account from Scripture, though, that you might not be as familiar with, but it shows God's superiority over idols or man-made gods. And this happens when the Philistines capture the Ark of God. Now, remember, that Ark was a visible symbol to the people of Israel of God's presence. But here's what happens when the Philistines decide they want that Ark. So here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 5. It's a short chapter, but it's narrative, so it's not so hard to listen to. I'm going to read the whole thing. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer, not Ebenezer Scrooge, the town of Ebenezer, to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now, Dagon was an idol, and I'll talk about that in a bit. Now, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. 
They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. It's dangerous to take lightly the one true God. Now, you may be asking what this has to do with Deuteronomy chapter 6. Well, I'm using it as an illustration. Sometimes it's good to let Scripture illustrate Scripture, right? We're going to be in Deuteronomy 6 for the next few weeks at least. And my prayer has been that God would use this study and this text to draw us out of any complacency we may have regarding our own spiritual growth and that of our families and the whole community of believers who call Oasis Church their home. As Kevin said, we're preparing to fully engage as a church in D6 starting in September. And this is the honest truth that when I began our study of Deuteronomy at the beginning of this year, I didn't even know I would be presenting the idea of D6 to the board. And in fact, you may recall that we were very limited in doing something like that because we had a lease in the other building we couldn't use. Um, But as things turned out, the board chose not to renew that lease. Also, I didn't know I was going to miss several Sundays uh, because of some health issues I was dealing with. And I'm saying that just to comment that I happen to think it is superb timing that here we are in Deuteronomy 6 in our preaching series just before we begin D6 next month. I wish I could take credit for some very clever planning to put us where we are at the moment. But honestly, it's not my timing. But here we are. Today, our main focus is going to be a single verse, a very important verse, Deuteronomy 6.4. It's a verse that, was re- that is recited by devout Jews multiple times per day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Before we dive into this, let's remind ourselves where we've been thus far in Deuteronomy and Moses talking to the people and where we're headed. Moses has been recalling to the people Israel Uh, about God's faithfulness and, to an extent, Israel's unfaithfulness from the Exodus to the present time. And the present time, as far as when this speech was being given, is shortly before they're to enter the promised land. And Moses is recalling the commands of God and charging the people to follow those commands. So both before and after Deuteronomy 6, Moses is once again laying down the law of God. Now, some have said that Moses' main concern is to teach the people a holy fear of God. Deuteronomy 6 immediately follows Deuteronomy 5. Neat how that works, huh? But in Deuteronomy 5, there are the Ten Commandments recalled to the people, having first been recorded in Exodus 20. Moses reminds the people of these commands. Also, he reminds the people how they trembled after seeing the manifest presence of God, and they begged Moses to be their mediator between them and God. We talked about that last week. So then Moses continues in chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 so we have the context around verse 4. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, 
you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, particularly with Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, this is the basis that the people who put together the D6 curriculum started with. There is a need for people of faith to be diligent in their teaching of the faith to each generation. This principle is not only for the Israelites. Certainly, they had many specific rules that applied to them that we don't have. We're not concerned so much with teaching our children which sacrifice was for what purposes like they were. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't learn about those things since they show us something about the character of God. So this is not about teaching our children as though they were there listening to Moses, but as followers of Jesus, we should greatly desire to know him better. Everything in the Old Testament, in one way or another, points to Jesus Christ. So while the New Testament may be our primary source of instruction in the Christian faith, learning about the long history of redemption that God has prepared for us will greatly enrich our understanding and our appreciation for what God has done for us. So we're looking at getting some signs to put in both buildings with that passage on them so that we will always be reminded of what our focus is as a church. We're focused on making disciples. And that includes equipping and spurring on parents, grandparents, single people, widows and widowers, any faithful person to Christ we want to equip and encourage to join us in raising up and teaching each new generation. Because each new generation of believers needs to know what it is that Christ demands of them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, H-E-A-R. This is a clear command. Hear. And wrapped up in this command is not only the need to hear what Moses is saying, but a need to believe what he's saying. One of the best ways to find out what someone believes is by observing what they do. For example, if someone told me or told you, hey, if you're really smart, you would buy all the stock in this certain company that you could, because that company's on a path of guaranteed success. And then suddenly you learn that the person who told you that has never invested a dime in it. You may conclude that they really don't believe what they're telling you. I know a lady who is very successful as a sales manager at various car dealerships. 
And many years ago, she made a career from a Ford dealership to a Volkswagen dealership. And before the Ford dealership, she had been at a Chrysler dealership. And I remember asking her about it, thinking this must be really hard. After all, day in and day out for many years, you've been telling people that Ford is the best vehicle and telling customers they'll be happiest if they buy a Ford. And I asked her, how can you now go sell Volkswagens? And her answer was, love the one you're with. I was like, you see, I don't think I could do that. If I spent years saying Fords were the best and sold many vehicles with that brown, I don't think I could face any of my former customers and tell them, well, now I think VW is the best, you know? I think if I sold you a Ford with all the sales techniques I knew and called you back a year later and told you, well, now I think you'd be happier with a Volkswagen. You'd have to ask yourself if I really believe that Volkswagen is the best. Or did I really think Ford was the best last year when I told you that? And certainly if it was discovered by the customer that I don't even own a Ford or a Volkswagen, but some other brand, that customer would certainly have reasons to question my integrity or what I really believe. My point is this. You prove what you believe by what you do. The people of Israel in being commanded to hear were being commanded to believe and commanded to do. The evidence of that belief would be in their actions. Augustine said, love God, then do as you please. What do you mean by that? Do as you please. What Christian leader would ever teach his people this? It was a very deep statement if you think about it. If you love God, obedience would follow. A desire to please him would follow. Wanting to be in his will would follow. So Augustine was saying just the same thing in a much more clever way than I did. So to hear is to obey. The evidence of your belief, the evidence of your love is in the doing. So said Jesus that the evidence for love for him is in keeping his commands. Hear, O Israel, hear, believe, do. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the Hebrew, there are six words after the commandment to hear, and they've been translated in several ways, and I've got a slide for this just to show you. These, are just a, these aren't even all of them, but here's some of the ways that this has been translated. Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Our God is Yahweh, Yahweh alone. Obey Israel, Yahweh. Yahweh our God is the unique. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's what my translation has. And the Lord our God is one Lord. And there are some others as well. So what does all this mean? Well, in these different translations, we can see that this short phrase carries inside of it a lot of meaning. Yahweh is one. He he was to be the only God that the Israelites served. Only he should have their love, their worship, their allegiance. He is the Lord, our God. Not that he belongs only to them, but they are to live as they belong only to him. I like that third translation. It got my attention more than the others. First, instead of hear, it says obey. In the Hebrew understanding, the command to hear meant to obey. But what really struck me was Yahweh our God is the unique. The unique. 
Now, if you're wondering, as the dictionary says, um, I don't do this very often because I know we know what unique means, but the dictionary says that it means being the only one of its kind, unlike anything else, belonging to or connected to one particular person, group, or place, or particularly remarkable, special, or unusual. Our God is the unique. I like that description. One thing to note here is that many of the scholars that I read as I studied this, they don't think the main goal of this statement was to enforce, reinforce monotheism, although it does, but more to differentiate who God is as opposed to the way pagan gods were believed in. And this is why I introduced you to Dagon when I began. Now, who was Dagon? Well, note that in the text I read from Samuel 1, it specifies that it was the Dagon of Ashdod. You see, most of the pagan gods or idols were duplicated in many places or settings. Now, there's no clear evidence that, that scholars and historians have found yet about who he truly was this, this god named Dagon. But some historians have said he was a fish god, half man and half fish, like Aquaman. Regardless of whether he was a fish god or not, though, the text leads us to believe that there was more than one of these idols, right? Otherwise, it would not be necessary to mention, well, this is the one that was in Ashdod. I'm going to quote from the pulpit commentary it says, this is affirmation not so much of the moneity as of the unity and simplicity of Jehovah, the alone God. Though Elohim, he is one. That's plural. Elohim, by the way, is plural. That's how we get the concept of the Trinity. The speaker does not say Jehovah is alone God, but Jehovah, our Elohim, is alone Jehovah. Among the heathen, there were many Baals and many Jupiters. And it was believed that the deity might be divided and communicated to many. But the God of Israel, Jehovah, is one, indivisible and incommunicable. He is the absolute and the infinite one who alone is to be worshipped, on whom all depend, and to whose command all must yield obedience not only to polytheism, but to pantheism and the con conception of a localized or national deity is this declaration of the unity of Jehovah opposed. With these words, the Jews begin their daily liturgy, morning and evening. The sentence expresses the essence of their religious belief, and so familiar is it to their thought and speech, it is said, they were often during the persecution in Spain betrayed by their enemies by their involuntary utterance of it. In other words, they said this so often that they would say it accidentally in, a, to, in front of an enemy when they were trying to hide their identity as a Jew. Isn't that amazing? Spence says in that quote I just read, there were many Baals and many Jupiters. I noticed when I was a child going along to the stores at Christmas time that there were many Santa Clauses. This might date me a little bit, but you'd go to Kmart, and there was a Santa there. Then you'd go to the mall, and there was a Santa there. And outside some stores were Santas ringing a bell for the Salvation Army. And most kids figure out, something's going on here. 
they don't even all look the same. And some don't smell like Santa. They smell like beef and cheese. (laughs) Some of you got that. Okay. (laughs) If you didn't get that, don't ask. This was the case with the idols of pagan worship. You, You may see the temple of Dagon in Ashdod, and then you visit another Philistine town, and you see another one. You may visit someone's home and see a miniature Dagon. Like many Santa Clauses, there were many Baals and Jupiters. Yahweh, though, was not like that. Yahweh was one, the unique. Not only could pagan gods be duplicated in many places, those who worshipped them believed they were all opposed to one another. You may please one with a gift, but now another one might be angry with you. Yahweh is not only unique, he is one in the sense there is no opposition within him. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not constantly at odds with each other like the pagan gods were. One can trust that the unique God is consistent in its purpose. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit never clash with each other, never challenge each other, never get in cosmic fights while the people cower below unsure of what God is really going to do in the end. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are unified. Now, there will be sometimes people that say, you know, stick with the New Testament, we'll be fine. Well, Jesus quoted often from Deuteronomy, including quoting our passage today, and attaching it, by the way, to his endorsement of it, saying it was the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Although in Matthew's translation, it says all your mind, which is an indication basically that all of what we are is to love God. And throughout Scripture, we're reminded that God is one. Is Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Zechariah 14, 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6, therefore, as to the eating of foods offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, all thi- from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There's only one true God. The Philistines believed in their God, Dagon, but before the true God... Dagon, even though he was a man-made statue, had to bow. But rather than choosing to worship the one true God who brought humiliation to Dagon and was afflicting those people with tumors because of their lack of reverence for him, the Philistines, instead of worshiping God, they just wanted to get rid of him. And such is still the case today. Confronted with the one true God, many people today, just as those Philistines of old, rather than bow to him, rather than submit, they want to get rid of him. Why? Because he demands righteousness. 
and the people reject that. What do you do when confronted with the one true God? Do you hear, obey, love? Or do you stop up your ears, rebel, and hate? It's been said for a long time that if you talk about Jesus in a certain way, you will always be welcome. If you talk about his kindness and his care, his concern for people, that's okay. Nobody will shut you down. Oh yeah, I like that, Jesus. But if you talk about what he requires of us, you may quickly lose popularity. If you talk about holiness, look out. You'll be hated by many people. Many will not bow the knee to Christ willingly, but Scripture tells us there will be a day when everyone will bow and proclaim him Lord. While you have the chance now, the Holy Spirit calls you to obey Christ, to repent of sin, to believe the gospel. In the past decade or so, we've all witnessed an alarmingly fast degradation of the society around us. In decades past, people would say of politicians, well, they pretend they're moral, but they aren't really. Now many politicians and influential people don't even pretend to be moral. They're not even pretending anymore, folks. In fact, they're openly mocking the values that God himself imposed on his creation. Most of you may agree with me and like this kind of preaching, and you want to be challenged, but it may not be very long before we have real opposition to this kind of preaching. Are we ready? When the opposition comes, will we be found faithful? How will our children react and understand when in their schools there's children who want to change their gender, or even worse, they want to be a cat or something? I come from a pretty old-fashioned town. I'd say very, if you want to use the word conservative, very conservative values, I thought. And I just heard this week that the high school there that I went to now has students who identify as cats. And they have put litter boxes in the restrooms. How much must you hate a child to affirm this kind of mental disorder? There's no love in that. How can the school board approve of such things? How can they not love these children enough to get them the counseling and the help they need instead of coddling them and telling them whatever they want to be, that's fine? It's because they mock God's order, his created order. And there is severe judgment to come. Jesus warned about those who would cause a child to sin. There's severe punishment for those who cause a child to sin if they don't repent. So how will our children cope with the craziness all around them? How will they be able to view these things from a biblical perspective? Parents, grandparents, church, we must obey the commands of Deuteronomy 6. We're responsible to teach our children right from wrong. So I urge you to participate in these six. I know it's a sacrifice to get up earlier to come out on Sunday. Every parent knows the challenge of getting out of the house on time. But let me challenge you with this. Do you make sure your kids get to school on time? Why? It's important that they learn, right? It's important they do well. Is it less important they go to church? As important? Or is it more important? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and how it challenges us 
and convicts us. Lord, I call on you to help us, please. I, I plead with you, Lord. We need your help to obey your command. And we are seeking to do so, Lord, as a church and as families. I pray, Lord, that there's others that will join in with us. Maybe we don't even know who they are yet. Someone who says the alarm bells are ringing all around us in our society, we must know God better. We must know God better. Lord, help us to do it. Give us the strength we need. Give us the fortitude we need to see it through. Give us the clarity we need to understand and know what your word is saying to us and what we're supposed to do with it and how we're supposed to apply it to our lives. Lord, we want to be obedient to you. We want to be able to obey this command to love you. And that means that we hear, believe, and do. In your strength, Lord, I believe we can do it. We need your strength. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to do it well. In Jesus' name, amen.